and we would just sit down and listen to jazz. I would drink my coffee and I would just play chess every day with the kids. And it was like the best class. I didn't do much teaching of chess because I felt like the teaching all came with the history of jazz. The teaching really takes care of itself in a class like that. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. The clowns with the frown driving down the sidewalk fair. Finger on the trigger, let me tell you, it's quite a scare. Woo, that's fire, Bob. Welcome to Thriving in Dystopia. I'm your host, Dave, with my brother, as always, the... The vocalist, the impressionist, <laughs> Bob. How you doing, Bob? Great, Dave. I got to th- thank um, the video game Rock Band for giving me the confidence to sing. Yeah. Oh, man, you're such a karaoke guy. Sometimes I forget about that. It's kind of a, a funny fit to have you be uh, Johnny Karaoke, you know? It's true. It's like so weird. You just would never think of this guy like me as a karaoke guy yeah did you ever want to join choir growing up bob no i really didn't yeah me neither (laughs) i I, you know i was in a jazz band and that was a big like source of pride for me i played the baritone saxophone well i played a lot of different saxophones as i kept getting bigger i started alto and then i um transitioned to the tenor sax and then once i realized that i was the biggest guy in the jazz band i just grabbed the barry sax oh man uh, those, those were good days man you were a great sax man yeah hey can i tell you a little story about the saxophone oh please love it yeah so the reason i so bat way back in the day uh, message boards used to be cork boards at grocery stores and they still have those and it's still like you can go to any grocery store and see what's happening in the neighborhood right but at our grocery store it used to be a place where you could like post notes king supers in boulder you could post notes and you could like just check out what was happening and i remember that our dad once went and he looked at the cork board and he saw that there was a, a free clarinet do you remember that? Hmm. I remember we got a free clarinet at one point. I didn't know that that's how oh. we got it. Yeah. So then he got a free clarinet. And when he went, he also was able to get a... Uh, so he got you a clarinet and you became a clarinet player, which is just like, yeah, randomly Bob plays clarinet because of the cork board. And then I was like, oh, I really need to play an instrument too. So dad went back to the message board and he found me an alto sax. And that's why I started playing alto sax in fifth grade. Oh, no. That's amazing. Yeah. And so next level, right? I get super into alto sax and I get super into jazz band. And I feel like I find this love for jazz music. And then I go to college and I take this class called Appreciation of Jazz. And it's just like sitting in class and listening to jazz music. And I remember that I'd, I'd always bring a big old coffee with me. <laughs> And I just sit there and fast forward 10 more years and I start 
um, a class. I, I, I become a teacher and I start this class called Jazz and Chess, which is just mm. me bringing a second cup of coffee to school. And we talk about jazz and like the history of jazz. And I give the kids like 10 or 15 minutes about why jazz is the best. And then we listen to an album each day. So I would pick out like Brubeck or Miles Davis, Kind of Blue or Coltrane, you know, something like classic. And we would just sit down and listen to jazz. I would drink my coffee and I would um, just play chess every day with the kids. And it was like the best class. I didn't do much teaching of chess because I felt like the teaching all came with the history of jazz. The teaching really takes care of itself in a class like that. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, We also did have a chess prodigy. So he was kind of, um, he was like the guy and he would like teach everybody chess and moves and people get really inspired to learn like scholars made or um, different types of like defense things to like try and win or like win in three moves. And then, so one of the kids in my jazz and chess class, his name's Nat and he took the class because he was super into chess, but he ended up, like getting really into the jazz part of it and my Mm. teaching and he fell in love with jazz and he ended up joining the jazz band at his high school. Wow. And he play, he plays the tenor saxophone. My God. That's amazing. I know. I know. And I'm just like, and he, both him and his dad have like talked to me and said how like that class kind of like changed the trajectory for Nat. And hopefully at some point I want to have him on the show. He's, I want to, when we do our education series, I want to talk to him about what it's the perspectives of a high school student. And yeah, I just think it's so cool that like randomly back in the 1990s, dad was on like a cork message board at King Supers. And that's kind of the reason why (laughs) Nat plays tenor saxophone in a lot of ways, you know? Oh man, you think that cork board's still around? God. (laughs) <laughs> no, but you know what is around it's the horse that you put a penny in oh and, is it, and you, it is yeah i was back at the king supers and i was like oh man the the penny horse is still here and it man it's just like how many times has that motor been serviced in the last 40 years <laughs> yeah i remember that uh penny horse when i was a kid one of my first memories maybe three or four years old yeah, I loved getting the extra pennies while mom was doing checkout and jumping on the the penny horse. Good stuff. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah. Comes full circle. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how are you doing? I we just jumped right into it, but story time. What's going on with you, Bob? I am doing pretty well and um, holding in there, hanging in there. It's uh. Made it through the July 4th weekend. I, it's like, uh, it was wild here in Seaside. There's like all these firework vendors. And so, and there was no centralized fireworks. So people in the oh, interesting, yeah, lighting fireworks all night long. And these were massive. These were like really illegal cannon fireworks for hours and hours and hours into the wee morning. And I've never experienced anything like it. It was both remarkable and 
you're very memorable, but fireworks always um, remind me of how they're, they're so traumatizing for people who have been in war zones or around guns and then also animals. So I'm so against fireworks because of that. Um, mm, interesting. It was, it was yeah. really, really interesting times here. Yeah. Mm. Yourself, Dave? Yeah. Um, the fourth was definitely a pretty mellow day. I, I feel like I don't remember the last time I really got into a fourth of July celebration. I feel like I've used it as a day to sort of spend in protest much like, Oh, like black Friday or Martin Luther King day. Um, days that are a day a day on a day to be politically active i feel like the fourth of july has fallen into that into that sort of mentality for me so yeah it was definitely not like a day that i was actively out there but one of the things that i did do is i try and like julie and i have been thinking a lot about how we can make some of our like financial contributions so like going back, sorry, we, when we got our Trump check, we wanted to like find a way to, to take our Trump money and put it towards a cause that we believed in, you know, but I definitely feel like we wanted to sort of make a reoccurring donation rather than a one-time donation. And I feel like those are the, like a, being a sustainer or a supporter is the type of donation that can really help a organization or a person. So we used the 4th of July to try and find a way to take that Trump money that's been sitting around and put it into a cause that feels good to us. And one of the people that we decided to support was Kimberly Jones, who um, sort of rose to fame when she was on uh, John Oliver. And she was also on Trevor Noah, The Daily Show. And she just went viral after the talk that she gave about how this country has let black people and people of color down and that we have broken the social contract where we, when a crime happens to call the cops and call the police and those people who are called to come fix the situation, they are killing black people while we need to be like in Oh, I'm not going to exactly say it exactly right, but we need to find ways of lifting up black voices. And she's a, a young adult author, which is something I also believe in. So I went on Patreon and supported her. Very nice. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And um, I sent you that video about like the 4th of July and it's a, uh, Update of Frederick Douglass's famous speech. What is oh, yeah. your Fourth of July to me as an enslaved person? And I don't remember his name, but he is a one of the actors from Hamilton. And he reads a update of that poem, and it's really good. We'll link to it. And I think he's doing it with the Movement for Black Lives, which is another group that I really support. And so in that light, Dave, I appreciate that. And 
yeah, there's a, a number of really important groups to be supporting right now. Yeah. I think I think the Hamilton actor's name is David Diggs. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. That's it. So yeah. powerful. Cool. Yeah. So we should link both Kimberly Jones and David Diggs in the show notes. So if you haven't seen those, it's it would be a good way to access them. Yeah. It's always I think some people don't know exactly what the show notes are. Do you want to sort of describe because you do the show notes, Bob? Oh like yeah. How someone might be able to find them because I definitely have heard a few people talk about like what are the show notes? Oh yeah, so the show notes can be found wherever people download their podcasts. It's underneath the title, and we give a little summary of what the show is, and then every time we mention something that has a reference or there's more information or a video about something, we try to link to those references or videos so that people can educate themselves further. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like just a little peek behind the curtain um, after we edit. So we always record on Monday and I spend the rest of my Monday editing the show and just making it a little bit crisper, taking out a little bit of the pauses. And then once I'm done editing, I send it to Bob and he listens to it as a second listen. And then he writes the show notes and then he sends them back to me and we try and get them posted on, try and get the show posted Monday night or Tuesday morning. So we're trying to become a a Tuesday morning podcast, which has always been one of my least favorite days. And yeah, it seems like a nice day for a podcast to come out, at least personally. Yeah, I've been listening to other podcasts and, you know, at the end, they're like, executive producer is, mix, mixologist is, and I'm thinking like, that's all Dave, executive producer, Dave Maisler, <laughs> editor, Dave Maisler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, you know, we're just doing this just with each other to connect, but hopefully someday I, I don't have to be each and every role, you know? Yeah. But. For now, it's been pretty great. And yeah, it's been just a learning curve for both of us, for sure. Yep. Trying to get make the show sound good and feel good. So, yeah. Are you ready, Bob? Are you ready to get into the... Yeah, are you ready, Dave? Should we launch into the topic? Yeah, the main topic of the day. Let's do it. We'll say that the topic, just like last week, is a little bit amorphous, but... And we... I think have liked that approach a little bit where we can synthesize various things to pull them together by the end of the show. The overall framework is around the prisoner's dilemma and what the prisoner's dilemma can teach in various contexts, but I will particularly take that to the current political context and yeah, that, that's what I'll say as an intro and pass it to you, Dave, if you want to intro it any further or just go into the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, so that that feels great, Bob. I, I think the concept of the show, I want to start by shouting out a podcast that I've already shouted out, and it is a podcast that I feel really connected to because it started at the same time by two very, very dear friends of mine. It's called the single acorn and it's a podcast uh, about natural history and biology and 
the first arc that they've been sort of going down is all about symbiosis and how animals and plants evolve with each other or in competition with each other and how they sort of interact on those deeper levels based on evolution. And it is one of the smartest podcasts that I've listened to in a long time. Um, I definitely put it in my top five of like, I've learned more from that podcast than definitely any other. And I just really want people to try and go and check it out. They, you can just Google the single acorn. They're hosted through a outdoor education center called Crow's Path in Vermont, Burlington, Vermont. And if you, Bob, I think we'll link it in the show notes. He already has at one point, but he'll yeah, link sure. it again. I can do it again. And the second episode that they talked about was all about mutualism. So how two organisms will evolve with mutualistic uh, benefits to each other. And a classic one that people think about are like sharks and nurse sharks that kind of swim around them, right? So like a big shark will have a bunch of like parasites on them and they'll go to like these cleaning stations where they get cleaned by other fish and sharks and um, they they get all the bacteria off them cleaned, which is a benefit to both organisms because the big, the big sharks will stay healthy and vibrant and they won't get these bacteria infections. And then all these littler organisms get the, this like benefit of nutrients. So that's, that's like sort of the broad definition of mutualism, but they go super in depth and they start off the episode talking about the prisoner's dilemma and I got to thinking about how interesting it was to hear Tegan Glenn talk about the prisoner's dilemma. And I thought how we could do a shout out to their podcast and talk about the prisoner's dilemma on our podcast and sort of how it relates to the stuff that we tend to talk about. And so, yeah, that's sort of my overview. And I think I'm going to be the one that describes the prisoner's dilemma. And I think I'll just jump right on into it. Please do. For those... For those of you all that haven't thought about the prisoner's dilemma since intro to social psychology in sophomore year of college or, you know, even farther back or have never heard of it, um, the prisoner dilemma sort of is a hypothetical that um, I don't remember who started it. Do you remember who first theorized the prisoner's dilemma, Bob? No, I don't. Um, I just know that it is maybe the most famous heuristic or you know sort of situation within this idea of game game theory like thinking through social issues through like games or situations that are are like a um, a riddle or a game yeah yeah which is also another thing that we love to do and at some point i want to put out a riddle episode bob total side note um but yeah i definitely love game theory and so it starts off with two criminals, right? Do you want to name them or should I? Go ahead, Dave. Okay. Let's just call them Mr. Red and let's go Miss Blue. So Mr. Red and Miss Blue uh, have both been, the police have evidence that they have committed a minor crime, but the police also have reason to believe that they did a major crime and so that they they're going to use this interrogation technique where they're going to split them up and give them 
the these options and the options are this they say if you sell out your partner then and they don't sell you out then we will convict them of the major crime and we'll put them in jail for three years and you will get no jail time and they say this to both miss blue and mr red they also say that if neither of you squeal on each other then we'll convict you of a minor crime and you'll both get one year in prison and then they the final option is if you don't squeal and your other and your partner squeals on you you get three years in prison so oh right the fourth option right is both people squeal on each other then they both get two years in prison so we have these four options one let's just take it from mr mr red's perspective he can squeal on miss blue and if she doesn't squeal back, then he'll get zero years. But if she does squeal back, then he'll get two years in prison. Or he can not squeal and she could not squeal, then they would both get one year in jail. Or if he doesn't squeal and she squeals, <laughs> I don't know why I'm using the word squeal, <laughs> but I'm loving it. <laughs> then he'll get three years in, in prison. So the idea is this, right? If they both are if they both don't rat on each other then the the it will be best for the overall of the community that they would both only get a total like they would both get one year in prison which means that that's the least amount of prison time because if one squeals and the other doesn't then that's a total of three years and if they both squeal on each other then that's a total of four years so from the idea of the community the best, the best outcome for the least amount of prison time is for them both to be quiet. But on the individualistic perspective, if we look at Mr. Red, he will always do better if he sells out his partner, if he sells out Miss Blue. Meaning, if he sells her out and she doesn't sell him out, then he'll get no prison time, which is one year less than if she also doesn't. And if he sells her out and she sells him out, then that's one year less than three years. So from the individualistic perspective, it makes sense for us to always sell each other out. But for the overall community perspective, it makes sense for us to never sell each other out, never squeal. And um, I'll just give a little bit of context. I'll go a little bit broader. So Teague and Glenn, when they talked about this with mutualistic, um, with the mutualism, they talked about how there's this really cool um, species of moths in New Mexico that have co-evolved with different types of yucca plants. And there, so there's like several different species of moth, moths that are only able to pollinate with these yucca plants but if they go into these yucca flowers where they end up laying their eggs so they they're used as pollinators right and if they go into these yucca flowers and they smell that another moth has laid eggs then they know that if they end up laying eggs in that flower then the yucca plant is going to drop the flower so for that for these moths they need to think about the overall greatest good for the community which means that if they end up laying too many eggs, the yucca will know that there's too many eggs in the flower and they, they won't spend the energy to develop the flower into a fruit. So it's this really interesting idea of how 
we need to act in community with each other to get the greatest good. How the yucca, they want to get their seeds dispersed because if there's too many moth eggs in their seeds, the whole fruit will get eaten by little moth babies. And for other moths, it, they need to know that the if someone else has been there, it doesn't make any sense for them to lay eggs because then they know that no eggs will be laid in that flower. So that's kind of the context that Teague and Glenn talked about the prisoner's dilemma and how how individual freedoms and individual like the best for the individual is not necessarily always better for the community and how we need to weigh those two options with each other. Excellent. Very nice, Dave. Yeah, I have a response that takes us to using that heuristic to understand several social, like current social issues. And the first is before I launch into that, I want to say that sort of historically, this idea of mutualism is really important in the ways that it like offered a more complete picture of evolution. And there was a thread of Darwinism that really focused on survival of the fittest and like a very like idea like competition and destroying the other um, animals or species was like what drives evolution. And that was taken to, you know, social Darwinism, to eugenics, to Nazism. So that, that was like one line. Hmm. But in the 19th century, there was also like, I think in Darwin's works, he was never like just about that. He also saw mutualism as being a factor in evolution. So Darwin had this more holistic perspective, but then also this anarchist Peter Kropotkin wrote a book, Mutual Aid, that really expanded how evolution is so often about species co-evolving together and working together. Um, so that's an important piece of this that, that helps, like this uh, dilemma helps us understand. Mm, yeah, I like that a lot, Bob. And I feel too that it sort of relates back to joyful militancy. And yeah, as we love to bring up that book, that idea of together and working together is so important. But anyways, I don't mean to interrupt your flow. Oh, yeah, no problem. I appreciate it, Dave. And I like that you bring us back to joyful militancy. The other aspect that before I launch into the social, the current social issues is that the prisoner's dilemma is sometimes used by evolutionary psychology to say that humans are either one way or the other, like trying to, you know, give people surveys or, you know, put them in experiments with the prisoner's dilemma and see what they'll do and then make claims about human nature. However, hmm. what's clear is that it's that humans have a capacity under s- certain social um, circumstances to be very individualistic and to choose the, the the least amount of time for themselves and squealing on the other. But in other contexts, they are like very mutualistic. And so what's actually much more important is the, the context that the human being finds themselves in. 
and particularly the culture surrounding that person. And so I kind of want to talk about culture with uh, the current events. Yeah, I love that, Bob. And so the first area that I want to take it to is, you know, I think it, it screams to uh, be a very useful thing to think about with uh, coronavirus, where with masks and with like social distancing or not social distancing and the ways that the coronavirus is, you know, nearly out of control in the United States context versus other places in the world that have done a really good job of containing it. And one element that people point to here is the the rugged individualism. And, you, you know, you can't tell me to put on a mask. You can't, like, tell me not to go to the beaches. This came up in Santa Cruz where the beaches were closed by the city government, but people kept on going and going in big droves. And then the city government said, uh, we're opening the beaches, not because of science, but because the people won't stay away. So they totally came to this very individualistic perspective. And I guess, of course, they did because this is the United States where individualism is celebrated as like the ultimate cornerstone of what it means to be an American, you know, taking a more mutualistic perspective would, I think, encourage people to think much more carefully and about not only like who they might infect. Well, first of all, like I think people think about getting infected, but the prisoner's dilemma would also be like thinking about who might I infect, um, you know, if I go and then like much more deeply, like not just around, for example, Santa Cruz, but then like, where do people go and where might I go? So like going to a, a place might, you know, lead way down the road to some person getting infected that you don't even know about. Right. But right, um, right. when you're thinking mutualistically and like, thinking about community in these very large webs, that that sort of thinking, I think, is opened up. So that's one place that I want to take it to. The second place that I think it's important to take it to is going back to the, the anarchist perspective of mutual aid. And Kropotkin was an anarchist that there's all, like mutual aid is having a really, you know, valuable moment or this idea of, mutual aid groups coming together in the way in the sort of aftermath or during the struggling against the coronavirus where these neighborhood groups and little networks are coming together in Santa Cruz and Seaside just saying how can we support each other during this time when the government isn't um, and like certainly the federal government is terrible having terrible response but also like california is having a terrible response and like all these all the governments are basically failing so it's up to people to actually take care of each other and that's the idea of mutual aid where we just say like how can we support each other what resources do people need and in supporting each other we support ourselves this mutualistic perspective like the sharks um and and also like when you like you know help mutual aid networks and like get resources to people 
it, it becomes more than just those material resources. It becomes conversations. It becomes social, emotional, spiritual, and political. And I am a very strong supporter of mutual aid networks. And there's a great piece that I want to link to called Solidarity, Not Charity um, by Dean Spade, where mutual aid is about being in solidarity with each other. You know, I do it just because it's, you need it. Like, I'm not asking for anything in return just because another person needs it. And that, and that in a sense is good for me because I am in the collective Um, rather than charity being like, yeah, you can have this, but you have to pay it back or you can have it, but you have to meet certain criteria. Um, So I really, I like that as well. The third place that I want to take it to, and I want to hear your response to all this, Dave, but just let me, say this last one while it's on my mind is the prisoner's dilemma. Okay. This idea of culture. And so if you can scare people, then they will take the individualistic approach, at least in the United States context. Um, If you scare people and isolate them basically, and that's a lot of what governments have always done. And the current government is, you know, incredibly, like it, it lives off scaring people and isolating people. And so one of the things that we've seen in response to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and marches is that, and this came up this weekend, the, the Orange Menace making speeches about the far left, um, you know, radicals that are like both Trump and his attorney general, Bill Barr, have really focused in on trying to punish and create create um, a boogeyman around what they call the the, the far left radicals, and um, of course I identify as that. And um, if you ask me what being far left radical means, it means um, being joyfully militant about social justice, um, and you know all the things we talk about on this show. So, but it's extremely scary because in the wake of the um, protests, there's a lot of people, hundreds, if not thousands of people have been arrested and need support, need mutual aid from all of us. And we can't forget about them because they want to create a situation where we feel isolated and feel fearful because if we, what, what scares them is if we create a context of mutual aid and mutualism. And as you know, a lot of leftist groups have done a consciousness around when you go to jail, don't snitch on others. Don't give the FBI reason to attack other communities. So building this um, ethos of like, before we get arrested by, you know, these authoritarians within the prisoner's dilemma, we know that it's best if neither one of us talks. So understanding the prisoner's dilemma has been a part of anarchist groups and other leftist groups for a while, whether or not I, if they knew it was prisoner's dilemma or not. But it's been a really important thing for groups in the current administration, as well as previous governments have tried to attack it in order to get people to be more individualistic. And just have to say one more little piece because you mentioned it before. Go get them, Bob. There's one more group that we need to support is the Black Hills Bail and Legal Defense Fund. 
And that is a group who 15 indigenous people were arrested this weekend trying to uh, blockade uh, the road that goes to Mount Rushmore, um, where Trump had that rally in order to, you know, try not to have that awful rally. So um, that's another group that we need to really be supporting. All right. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk so long. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely working backwards, thinking about government repression and how that goes back. I mean, so far, but one of the big, the big things that's coming to my mind is Pro and the sort of taking down of the Black Panther movement in the 1960s. It's definitely something that the government has used, trying to use the idea of prison to, and if you can take the activists out of the streets and put them in prison, then that's a win, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that's a win for the system that is trying to not be open to change. And that's a loss for us that are trying to help change the system and create a new normal. And I think that that's a tactic that has been used for generations, if not longer. So if we go back and we look at Fred Hampton when he was killed and the uprising and the anger that happened because of that, um, from the idea of trying to subdue the activism that's happening in the streets, it's always worse. It's easier and better if they are just able to lock people up and take that voice out of the streets, tie it up in the court system. And it's, it's a way to repress people. And that is something that we need to be mindful of, of how prisons are being used. So it's not just police killing people. It's the whole prison industrial complex that is shutting down activism a lot. I also wanted to talk a little bit about mutual aid. I feel like, Bob, you um, talked about mutual aid, and I feel like it's definitely a core tenet of anarchism, right? And it's something yeah. that we might even want to talk a lot more about. I realize that on a personal level, I, I could use a little re-education, and I'm sure it's something that... We've been talking a little bit about talking about sort of some of those core tenets of anarchism and sort of flushing them out. But that idea of the individual versus the community is definitely something that anarchism approaches in a very strong way. And I don't I'd be remiss if we didn't talk to at least about one or two dystopias on um, on the episode. Yes, we got to we got to keep that going. So one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is. This idea, the the book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and it definitely is has a ton of correlations to 1984 and by George Orwell. And I feel like both those books were written, like Brave New World was written in the 1930s and I believe 1984 was written in 1948. So they were both written in sort of reaction to communism. And both those two books deal with like this, this idea of the whole world is being subdued and everyone is becoming the same and we're all losing our free thinking and we're all, the individual is disappearing, right? And I think these books really hit it in a really hard way and it's really powerful how much like we as individuals want to thrive and how when we're reading this book, especially coming from the United States, how when we read this book, it's just like such an affront, right? 
um, to individual freedoms. But I think that there's also this idea that we need to be mindful of that we are not just trying to, we want individual freedoms and we want to see those creative feeling and free thinking people like rise to the surface and become these like spiritually impassioned and gifted people that we know that they all are. We don't want them subdued, but we also want to take this look and sort of look at it from the lens of anarchism where we want to create these systems of mutual aid where we're not just individuals doing whatever the hell we want. We're individuals that are working for the greater good of a society that is built on supporting each other. And I feel like it's definitely a, it's definitely a hard balance to find like on a personal level, but maybe on a, a greater level too. It's finding that balance because there is this idea that anarchism is just all about destroy destruction. And, you know, like if you were to look it up in the dictionary, I'm sure it'd be like synonymous with apocalypse or synonymous with death and destruction. But it's like anarchism is really built on this idea of mutual aid. And I think that that is one of the things that we need to be um, sort of have that reeducation about, because that is, that is one of the things that I feel is, a core passion of mine, these community building projects and like taking care of each other. So there is like those links to like socialism in those ways where we want to have a public health system. We don't want to just like take that down and we want to have ways of teaching and learning and helping and healing. Those are all parts of anarchism that we don't want to take away. And I think, um, yeah, that's about all I want to react to with everything that you said there, Bob. Awesome, Dave. Yeah. Absolutely. Probably a show that we want to do on mutual aid. There's a lot to say about it and what you said about people who have, yeah. I mean, I think it's basically comes down to capitalism tells us that we need to be like thinking out, like just for ourselves, taking care of number one. And that like to do that is separate from community but when you said about like spiritual activists or activists who are like passion and like really full, like I think when people are like that and they create an abundance and, you know, when I'm like really thriving, I I really want others to thrive. So it's, it's not like when I'm really at that peak, you know, so-called individual freedom, it's, it's only when I'm like really connected to other people and they're doing well. So to me, there's no separation between those things. And, and yeah, I do think that anarchism provides a framework to like enhance both because it, it doesn't really separate them like capitalism does. Yeah. And my misquote from last week, but the, the real quote is no one is free until we are all free. And I feel mm-hmm. like that is at, at the core of mutual aid right yeah. there. Yeah, so I guess the final take home around the prisoner's dilemma for me is, yeah, like probably all of us could be in that situation and make, you know, different decisions. It it just depends on, I think, how connected we feel to others. If we feel like we can trust the other person, it's so it's so much about trust. So building connections of trust will help us if we are ever in a prisoner's dilemma to to act in mutual ways and of course there's risk involved that's 
the whole point that it's risky to be mutualistic within that situation. And when we have that trust, we can do that. So it, I think it, it points to like, how do we build trust? How do we build connection? And that actually building relationships is a really important part of activism. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important for us to look at all those ways that we're trying to, we're being disconnected from each other and mm-hmm. finding those ways to reconnect with each other because you can't have trust without connection. Yeah. Ooh. That's right. Yeah. Sweet, Bob. So do you want to talk a little bit about your what you're tuned into this week and what you've been watching? Yeah, I guess I do. And it might step on some toes here. Uh-oh. But I watched Hamilton. Oh, okay. It was on Disney Plus. And I definitely had a lot of mixed feelings about it. Hmm. Tell Have me more. Uh, I've heard it. I love the music. Like the music is definitely strong and powerful, but I don't really know more than that, than the soundtrack that I've listened to. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it. Um, I, I would agree that the music was awesome and I really enjoyed that. I guess the, the, the core of it is basically it celebrates Alexander Hamilton and also George Washington and some of the others and I'm just at a point where and even though it's like people of color in the main roles and that's that's really great and I strongly support that I I just like strongly wonder about that like for example why isn't it like Harriet Tubman right um it's still like celebrating Alexander Hamilton like who put together the like the federal reserve and the, you know, like the banks of this country and was a bit of a womanizer, it seems like. And so, um, that's, that's what I basically felt uncomfortable with. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Nice. Well, yeah, I'm excited to see it. And I always like having a critical lens on, especially with anything that has to do with the quote unquote forefathers of this, of this country. Yes. So, and yeah, yeah. I, I hope our listeners can give us alternate perspectives on it because I know it's a very celebrated musical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing I'm excited to be tuned in to is I'm going to listen to a new podcast this week. It's called Unlocking Us, it's Brene Brown's new podcast. And I feel like she's done a lot about. The, the concepts of shame and accountability. And I'm specifically going to go listen to that one. It came out this last week and Julie said it was really powerful. So after I'm done editing our podcast today, I'm going to try and listen to Unlocking Us on Shame and Accountability and just sort of thinking about all those concepts of like saying sorry and what do apologies mean and how we can deal with that. So I don't, I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm excited to go listen to it. I also did finish season six of Alone. And oh, nice, Dave. Dang. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah. So that's how I've been getting my fix on this week with uh, all those sort of mind rots that are just the best. I love them. Yeah, yeah you got to have one or two of those. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. It keeps us uh, sort of in touch. <laughs> Maybe not in touch, but it keeps us... Uh, 
keeps us sane. Yeah, maybe we could end the show with a trivia question about a show that's a, I don't exactly want to call it a mind rot, but um, it's like more just an everyday show that I know you, you, you appreciate and enjoy. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to ask me the trivia or do you want me to ask the audience? I have no idea what it is. I was going to ask you. Okay. I'm ready. All right, Dave. This is from Bob's Burgers. Oh, okay. I'm interested in hearing if you can name the name of the boy band from Bob's Burgers. Oh, man. It's the one that Tina's really into. She is. It's it's like a playoff boys to men, but it's like, uh, no, I'm not going to get it. All right, Bob. Uh, you're so close there. That, you're on the right path. Uh, they're called Boys for Now. Boys for Now. Ah, shucks. Well, thanks for the trivia, Bob. Appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. We also got a new... Uh, a new end song. So we're done with uh, season one with our call season and we're stepping into the next one. It's uh Kennedy and I'm excited for you all to hear it. It's a pretty, pretty good track. It's a, a remix of a uh, redhead blonde song. So did we just finish yeah. uh, season one? Did we just start season two? Yeah, I guess. We did, didn't we? I don't know. Yeah. We're doing eight episode seasons. There's not going to be season breaks or anything, but It'll be noted by the end song and maybe the start song. Who knows? But yeah, end of a end of an era, Bob. On wow. to the next. Uh, pop open a bottle of champagne. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice, Bob. Well, anyhow, let's cue that new song and say our goodbyes. Cue it up, Dave. Love you, Bob. Love you, Dave. Thanks for the show. Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob and I just want to take that second and thank you all for those years that you keep on lending us. It seriously means the world to us, and we couldn't, and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks so much. We also want to thank the artists for making our podcast a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford, and our new outro song is called The Time for Action by Kennedy. And as always, the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine did our thumbnail art. Well, we'll see you next Tuesday, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Action, 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 action. Lisa y sanamente, la cruda y febrada la vivimos en el presente. Tirados sin piedad y perdidos entre la gente. En esta realidad esperando pacientemente. El cambio ya se siente, te mienten. Los que dicen ver una grieta Presentan argumentos sin evidencia concreta Hacen de todo un cuento para que se ríe al lado Un mensaje para ellos, el número están superados Tantos de mi clase que no tienen dónde ir Sin nadie que los ampare ni razón para existir Odiándose entre ellos al no poder recurrir A un sistema que los mata y solamente quiere huir Se niega a abrir los ojos a ver tantas injusticias La calle es color rojo y nunca salen las noticias Manipulan a su antojo, nos dejan en la inmundicia Pero ahora su despojo va a ser la única primicia